Well, if you've been following along in Revelation, we're getting to toward the end of it in our, in our reading plan. We're going to dig right in, uh, but before we do, I wanted to, wanted to start with a little story. Um, back in 2020, when the world kind of went crazy, uh, I mean, it's still crazy, but when things started to unravel in that year of 2020, um, a friend of mine who I'd been praying for for many years, um, this is a friend who believed in God but was not truly following, I don't think, to his full capacity. I was concerned about him because I didn't know where he was in his faith. Um, and I know that uh, I love his family. I love his wife. He's just very dear people to me. And um, so I had been praying for him for many years. I mean, I'm talking 10 plus years. I had been praying that he would get more serious about his faith. And in 2020, um, in the summer, I was home. And I hear a knock on my door, and I go to answer the door, and it's my friend. He's standing there, and I'm very surprised. He asks, he says, I need to talk to someone. Can I come in and talk? I said, absolutely. And he came in, and we had a talk. And I'm going to leave it right there as we dig into some, uh, some of Revelation here, and we'll come back to this. So Revelation, we're going to dig into Revelation 17 this morning. We're going to start right at the beginning with verse 1, and I want to look at the first five verses to start off with. So Revelation 17, verses 1 through 5. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, it is so good to be able to open your word, to be able to study it, to be able to absorb it, to be able to learn from it, we want to be people of the word. We want to be people who live your word, not just talk about it, not just know it, not just discuss it, not just even, uh, you know, in, be in awe of it, but truly that it changes our life. It means nothing if it doesn't change who we are, God, um, and who we need to become because you have placed in us your Holy Spirit and, and you, do, you, you have told us we are not to stay the same people. And so I pray, God, that as we open your word, as we study it, that we would become different, that we would become different and not only in how we think, but how we act. And I just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in Revelation 17, verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple, and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. Dr. Michael Heiser has a quote 
that goes like this. Revelation, he's talking about Revelation 15, 16, 17, 18. Revelation chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18 are setting up a final conflict between God and the Babel or Babylonian system, which has seduced the world into idolatry. He goes on to say, battle lines are being formed in Revelation. And it's all stage setting for Armageddon. And Armageddon is going to be about the nations aligned against God and his people at Jerusalem, just like Revelation 20 describes. So we talked about this in Sunday school. Babylon and Babel are actually the same, come from the same Hebrew word. In Hebrew, it's the same same word. And so when we read, anytime we read about Babylon, especially when it's being used as a metaphor here, there's, Revelation 17 is chock full of metaphors. It's metaphor on top of metaphor on top of metaphor. And so when John is using Babylon here as a metaphor, we need to dig into, okay, um, what do we know about the Old Testament that is associated with Babylon? Well, we know the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, right? What's the summary? For those of you that don't know what happened at the Tower of Babel, here's the summary of the Tower of Babel. Fueled by pride, Noah's descendants, in Noah's case, so this is Noah's descendants, we're talking like 200, 300 years after the flood, okay? So after God's wiped the earth with the flood, Noah's descendants are told to be fruitful and remultiply the earth, and only a couple hundred years into that process, they decide, through their pride, we're going to make a name for ourselves by building the Tower of Babel. We're going to build this high tower that's going to be in defiance of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. It sounds bizarre to our culture because culturally, we're kind of sep- we're separated very much from Mesopotamian culture. And so why would they do this? Why would they build a tower? What does this symbolize? Well, in ancient Mesopotamia, they believed that gods, uh, yeah, they inhabited mountains. They lived high up. And because uh, when you were high up on a mountain, when you were high up um, on a structure, you were closer to heaven. You were closer to the gods. It's this place where heaven and earth meet, where the gods would interact with humanity. And so the Tower of Babel was a man-made mountain. It was a ziggurat. And we have a picture of that, right? We have that image of a ziggurat? Yes. So this is what a ziggurat would have looked like. This is what the Tower of Babel might have looked like. And it's essentially a divine abode, okay? 200, uh, 300 to 350 feet above the ground, so about the, twice the size of the Statue of Liberty, These were divine abodes where the Mesopotamians believed that heaven and earth intersected, like I said. And that what they're trying to do here is they're trying to interact with a God. But they're trying to interact with a God on their terms. So you would build this so that a God would then come down to inhabit that upper portion there of the ziggurat. And it's built for the purpose of bringing a God down to earth to essentially serve humans. And you can research this. These things were all over Mesopotamia. Every Mesopotamian city had one of these to the God of their choice. And so it's very clear what is happening. This is precisely the opposite of what God has told humans to do. He says, populate the earth, glorify my name, 
bear my image. And what do they do? They say, no, we would rather do our own thing. We're going to, um, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And you're going to help us because we're going to build a ziggurat and you're going to come down and dwell in it and then you're going to do whatever we want you to do. Now keep in mind, the Tower of Babel is very important and I don't think it gets talked about enough because it's essentially strike three with humanity. We have the Garden of Eden where man sins, rebels against God, right? We, God shows grace. Then we get to the days of Noah where everything is so corrupt, everything is so heinous that God says, okay, I'm wiping this and we're starting over. I'm wiping the earth I'm going to start with Noah's family and his descendants, and we're going to wipe this. Okay, strike two. Only a couple hundred years after the flood, we're right back in the same. This is the, three, this is the third strike where humanity is, does not, is not want, wanting to do what God has told them to do. It's continual disobedience. It's continual rebellion. So what does God do? Well, in Genesis 11, we, have, we get the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, starting in verse 7. Come. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So God confuses them, disperses them. This is, you know, the the, the tribe, tongue, language thing where they're, they're sent to different areas. Uh, because God's essentially like, look, I'm, we've done this three times now. It's not, we're, it's not working out, okay? We're, I'm done with this. What does he say in Deuteronomy 32? Deuteronomy 32 gives us additional information into the Tower of Babel event. And it's very interesting. When you read Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, it says this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, okay, divided mankind, there it is, there's the scattering, the divisions. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the allotment of the number of sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, so what God essentially is saying here is, we've done this three times, we're breaking up. We're dis, he's disinheriting the nations. He's disinheriting them. He's saying, he's scattering them. And he's saying, I'm choosing one guy, Abram. I'm choosing Israel, and I'm going to work through this nation, Israel. I'm disinheriting everyone, and I'm choosing. That's ex- exactly what he says right here. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So he's choosing for himself Israel. How do we know that this passage in Deuteronomy is really talking about that? How do we know that it's true? Because we read all through the Old Testament from Babel on. What's the entire narrative of the Old Testament? The whole thing, almost every story is Israel and Yahweh versus the disinherited nations and their gods. Whatever their beliefs were, right? Because there was a whole bunch of them. Zeus, Marduk, Baal which we talked about in Sunday school, Baal actually comes from the Tower of Babel, from Nimrod, is where the, the, is the birthplace of Baal. And so the question is, will God's people remain faithful through the Old Testament? Will they remain faithful to Yahweh? 
Or will they do what, what has happened with Adam and Eve? What's happened with, with in the times of Noah? What's happened at the Tower of Babel? And will they allow for these other influences, these, these forces of evil, these forces of darkness, the other nations and their gods to influence them? They're in, the, they're in a tug of war, essentially. And if you are a foreigner from one of those disinherited nations, it's not like you can't know God. You can still know Yahweh, but what do you have to do? What's the one thing that you have to do if you're outside of Israel and you want to know God and serve, serve Yahweh? What did you have to do back then? Repent, turn from the God that, you're, that you serve, and, and pledge your allegiance to Yahweh and serve him only, right? This is the main storyline of the Old Testament. So this is how we know that these disinherited nations, God scatters them and chooses for himself Israel. And his plan for, of salvation is that through Israel, everyone would know him, right? This is what he wanted. He wanted the nations to eventually come back. This wasn't a disinheriting permanently. This was a disinheriting temporarily. And I'm going to use Israel to influence the world and bring the nations back into the fold. Bring everyone back to serve the one true God, right? To be reconciled. And what we find, this theme that goes through history, we find the same thing over and over and over. It's this theme of Babel, the systems of Babel, the gods of Babel fighting against God's plan, fighting against Yahweh, warring against his people. Again, this is every story in the Old Testament, right? God, through the prophets, what does he say in the Old Testament? Come out of her. Come out of the false Religion, come out of the false gods and serve Yahweh. Be faithful. He uses so many analogies throughout the Old Testament of this. And so it's going to continue. You know, it's, it's a theme that does not go away. It goes through the Old Testament. It goes through the New Testament. It goes through the early church struggled with this, this kind of thing. And it's still going on today. It's going to continue to go on until, as Revelation says, the day of the Lord the end of days, until God's final judgment occurs. And that's what Revelation 16, 17, and 18 is describing. It's describing the finality of this system of Babylon, the system of Babel, finally being judged. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. That's the description that we get of Babylon. So what's the rest of the story? If we go back to, uh, to the Tower of Babel, what's the rest of the story throughout time? Because there are, this is not just, we're talking about Babylon. We're not just talking about Babel. We're not just talking about the city of Babylon. We're talking about the, 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 uh, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well today in our culture today. So where, where, does, where do we see this throughout history? Well, um, we see that the Tower of Babel would later become the city of Babylon. Can we br bring that Babylon image up? Which Babylon is modern-day Iraq, okay? And so Babylon would, what, what did Babylon do in the Old Testament? Well, they destroyed Jerusalem. This is when Israel, this is when the, the, the Jews were carried off to captivity, okay? They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the te God's temple. They slaughtered God's people. Now, some would be saved through, they took some captive, right? So some would be spared through captivity. But God allowed all of this because Israel was overripe for judgment due to their sin of idolatry. 
okay? Fast forward to the New Testament, the context that we get for, for Revelation, John's context for writing this. It's Rome is the power. Now, what does Rome do? Rome does the same thing that in 70 AD, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temp- second temple, slaughters God's people. Now, we know that a remnant would escape because the church was scattered in that time, right? Believers were scattered. So there was always, there's always a remnant that's saved. There's, you notice that? There's always a remnant that is faithful, that is saved. The remnant would escape, and God allowed all of this because Israel, again, was overripe for judgment due to their sin of idolatry, okay? End times. What's going to happen in the end times? God is going to destroy the world, slaughter those who are against him, save those who know him, and God will do this in the end times because this world is overripe for judgment due to their sin of idolatry and rejection of Jesus. You can see it's the same thing that's happened all throughout history. It's the same theme, right? It's not any different when God talks about how he was going to judge Babylon, how he's judging Babylon, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well today. So you can see the pattern. God has a history of handing people over to their allegiances. Handing people over, to, and it's a little bit of a scary thought. God is a patient God. He's incredibly patient. Look at the grace in the, in the Old Testament with every step of the way, with you know, we can go back through it again, the garden, the flood, the tower about, I mean, all these instances of rebellion and disobedience, and yet God is so patient. But he is going to hand people over to what they want. He, we do have free will, and people are not going to choose him, and he's going to say, okay, you want to choose hell? You want to choose rebellion, disobedience, chaos, darkness, evil? Okay. Romans 1 tells us, for although they, now think about, I want you to think about with this passage, think about our culture today, our culture today. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they engaged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here we go. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is a, this is a frightening passage of reality. And we've seen it all throughout history. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... I like the, the, Jewish New Te- the, the Jewish Bible says, translates it this way, since they have not considered God worth knowing. Since they have not considered God worth knowing. This is the spirit of Babylon. It's the spirit of Babel. Just like Rome, 
Just like Babel, just like Babylon, complete rejection of God. And what does this lead to? What does it lead to? A debased mind, insanity. The Jewish Bible says worthless ways of thinking. It's exactly what we're seeing in our world today. Chaos, evil. It's, it's unbelievable. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. It's, 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 cra- it's crazy. And who allows it? Who allows it? God. God allows it to happen. And he says, okay, if that's what you want. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, are we living in later times? I think we probably are living in later times. It says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Again, same theme, debased mind, conscience that's seared. There it is again. In order for humans to live in the flesh and enjoy what they're doing, they first have to remove the, the remorse and the guilt and the accountability. Get rid of that so that I can feel okay doing what I want to do. We have to kill the conscience. We have to kill God. And I want to unmask it because Satan is a liar and the Babylonian system is, is, is step one is steer your conscience. And there are many people who are doing it today, myself included. We all do this, right? You know what I'm talking about. Your conscience is a gift from God. I don't think, I don't think we talk about this enough. Our conscience is a gift from God. That's why people hate Christians. That's why people hate the Bible, because God has built morality into the fabric of our beings. And once you can obliterate any prohibitions that the Bible would have from your mind, you're free to engage in whatever actions and whatever attitudes that you want to without any remorse, without any guilt. You don't feel bad about it. And God is a patient God. But there's a time when he says, okay, again, that's what you want? Go at it. This is really what you want? Fine. Like the prodigal son, right? Father says, here's your money. Go to it. Go ahead and have it. And it's not an overnight activity for a lot of us. It's, it's subtle. It happens almost too slowly to recognize. It's, again, you know what I'm talking about. You do it once, and you know that you shouldn't be doing it. You know you shouldn't be there. You know you shouldn't be saying that. You know you shouldn't be thinking that. And you say, oh, it's just one time. It's just one time. It's just this one time. That's it. And you, and, and you really have to work through that conscience, right? Ugh, just put it off to the side just this one time, and then what happens? And the second time is a little bit easier. And the third time is a little bit easier. And then before you know it, we talked about this in Sunday school, you're out in the wilderness, and you look around like, how in the world did I get here? How is this my life? It's the seared conscience. It's the debased mind. And there is always redemption. There is always forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. There is always forgiveness available. But as Pastor John said a few weeks ago, none of us, none of us are guaranteed even the rest of today. 
And your conscience is a gift from God. My prayer this week for myself has been, God, restore my innocence. Restore my innocence that I knew before I killed my conscience in certain ways. Restore my sensitivity to things that I had before I killed my conscience, before I decided to fill my mind with entertainment that, that normalizes violence and whatever. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Restore my innocence. Because there's a lot of things that we do, habits that we have, things that we go about and we do, and we don't even realize we're killing our conscience at that time. So, with all of that history, all that said about Babylon, the Tower of Babel, understanding the context of Rome and how it's still something that we deal with, we wrestle with today, this Babylonian system, this, the systems of the world that want to enslave us. Um, let's go back to Revelation 17 before I get on too many sidebars and go back to the first five verses again. And I want to reread the first five verses thinking about what we've talked about, okay? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away to the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple, and the scarlet Sorry, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Okay, so what is he talking about when he's saying all these things? Nations, waters, wilderness, riches, gold, silver, spiritual adultery, drunkenness, sexual immorality. These are all ways of describing the ultimate chaos and insanity, the hostility and intentional rebellion against God. It is the anti-Christ activity. It is anti-Christian activity. And it's all a way to describe this Deuteronomy 32 worldview where the nations are under the dominion and the authority of counterfeit leaders, counterfeit gods, false gods, who are following the systems of this world, who are enslaving people to it, who hate God. And John, in his writing, he's trying to pull these metaphors together to illustrate and personify this evil, which has seduced the world into sin by the searing of their conscience. From the very beginning, he's saying, says in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people. Come out. Come out from Babylon. Leave Babylon. Because Babylon is going to be judged, and whoever is found in Babylon is also going to be judged. What does this mean for today? Well, we've talked about it. It's still, this is still going on today. The whole world marvels at the system of the beast, the, 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 the Babylonian system. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You turn on the TV, it's all over. It's, it's in front of us at the checkout of grocery stores with the magazine aisle. It's, it's all over the place. 
politically, socially, economically, even religiously. We have churches who are partnering with the system of Babylon, partnering with the beast and compromising on doctrine, compromising on their people. If step one is a seared conscience, step two is dependence. Once you become dependent on the Babylonian system, they will not let you go. They will not let you go easily. Have you ever seen someone who has been steeped in addiction or in addictive behavior or has been um, plagued by demonic activity for their life? Someone who comes out of that is delivered from that. It is not an easy process, right? An addict who is delivered and chooses to turn their life and follow Jesus. It is not an easy, the enemy is not just going to say, oh, okay, yeah, you can go follow Jesus now. It's dependence. They want that worship. And it's fear-based, it's power-based, it's abuse-based. We see this in Revelation. It's all here. If you want to participate in our economy, if you want to eat, you have to bend the knee to us. If you want to survive, You've got to bend the knee to Caesar. That's what was going on in John's day. It it was the Romans, right? You've got to bend your knee to the emperor. You've got to burn incense to the emperor if you want to eat today. It's the same thing that's going on today. You've got to bend the knee. Just like Pastor John talked about, pledging your allegiance. He talked about the the head and the hand, right, with the mark of the beast. Is that your allegiance to either the systems of this world or to Yahweh, one one or the two. And if you want to avoid persecution, if you want to avoid suffering, then okay, you, you compromise and you pledge your allegiance to the system, to the beast. And John is saying, it's not worth it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. But it's more, about a one, it's more than a one-time event, right? It's a lifestyle. Revelation 18 goes on to describe how this system is going to use wealth, power, seduction, manipulation, to victimize and enslave people. How many of you know someone who is caught up in the ways of the world? Just they live their life in the world, in and of the world. And you look from a, from a, from a Christian perspective, you look and look, we all have our struggles. It's not a judgment thing. It's actually, I feel horrible that you're enslaved in that way. That your soul cannot understand that you can't see the truth that's before you. This is why we pray. This is why we take the good news to people. Because the good news is you don't have to be enslaved to the Babylonian system. You don't have to be enslaved to the ways of this world. You can be free. Jesus came to set the captives free. And it makes me so mad when I hear people talk about Christianity being a system that You have to be, oh, you're scared, go to church. Or you have to be dependent on someone. No, it's the opposite. You're the one that's dependent. Jesus brings true freedom. I am free because of him. I am free from sin. I am free to live my life and live holy. I don't have to go back to that system. It doesn't own me. It has nothing for me. And this is the hardest part about about. Living in the culture we live in is to be in the world but not of it. It's something that we will wrestle with until the very end when he throws the, the, the beast and the false prophet and, and, 
and the, the prostitute into the lake of fire. It's going it to go on until the end of time. Who is pulling the strings? Now, this is a question that a lot of people ask, okay? So if there's this system that exists that's enslaving people, the ways of the world, who's pulling the strings? Who has the authority behind the curtain? Well, Paul would say it's the spiritual powers of darkness. Ephesians 6, right? He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the question in my mind is, what is going to happen to these spiritual powers, these spiritual forces of darkness who have deceived people, who have deceived the nations, the disinherited nations? What's going to happen to them? What's God's message to them? Well, he tells us in Psalm 82. He says it very clearly. God is taking his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? He's talking to them. He's talking to this, these spirits of darkness right now, and he's saying, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of earth are shaken. This is what we were just talking about, people being enslaved to the system. He's saying, free these people. What are you doing? He says in verse 6, I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is how we know he's not talking to men because he's not going to say, men, you're going to die like men. He's saying, spiritual beings who have deceived the nations, these false gods, the spirit of the Antichrist that's already here, you're going to die like men. And then what does he say in verse 8? Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. This is the part that I love right here. You shall inherit the nations. Because when, God, when God's judgment comes, there's also going to be salvation that comes. There's also going to be an inheritance that comes. God is reclaiming his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. He disinherited them at the Tower of Babel. And through Jesus, he's bringing them back to the, into the family, back in as his children, right? You, people like you and me. I don't, we might have someone that's Jewish in here, so I don't want to offend anyone. But I think we're pretty much Gentiles in here. So people like you and me brought us back into the fold. We were disinherited. He brought us back into the fold through Jesus. You want to you uh, study something really cool? Study the Tower of Babel and then go study uh, Pentecost in Acts 2. Okay? Because what happens at, at the Tower of Babel? Different languages, scattered, confusion. What happens at Pentecost? The flames of the fiery tongues come down upon the apostles and they begin to speak in the native tongue of the disinherited nations. And everyone's hearing the gospel in their native language and they're saying, wait, how are we hearing the, the gospel in our native tongue? Because God's bringing it all back together. He's bringing his family back. 
And you and I are part of the mission of taking that good news and bringing the nations back. We are part of the plan to restore what was lost in the garden, what was lost at the flood, what was lost at the Tower of Babel. You and I play a role in that. And that's exciting. We are part of God's plan. We are at an awesome part of God's plan. An awesome part where we get to be used to glorify him and bring others into the fold. Right? Chaos, sin, rebellion, evil, not just from people, but from the principalities, the powers of darkness, these spiritual forces, all of it is going to be judged, all of it's going to be purged, and it's going to prepare the way for the king, King Jesus, to take his place in the restored Eden that was lost, in the new heaven and the new earth, with all of his children, you and I, for all of eternity. This is what happens when it comes full circle. It's going to all come full circle. But here's the thing. We are not freeloaders. We are not to be passive in the process. If you understand what's happened and how this has played out through history and what's going on, if you have clear vision of what's going on spiritually in our world today, then you realize that you have a responsibility and you have a role. And God has put in in you certain gifts and certain skills to be used to bring others back into the fold. It's a beautiful thing. You are part of God's story of redemption. And uh, that's the third point. Sorry, I haven't been doing a good job of telling you the points, but hopefully hopefully you're picking them up. Um, You are part of God's story of redemption, okay? And I would add to that, you are part of the plan to lead people out of Babylon. I want to be used by God to lead people out of Babylon. And you know, we are living, you guys know this, it's, it's an uh, unprecedented times, incredible time in our history. The morality of our nation is declining, the world is declining, not just here. But studies have shown that this next generation is hungry for Jesus is spiritually hungry. They want something real. And in, in, in this era of where the Babylonian system is, is all about corruption and lies and deceit, this next generation is so desperate for something real, something authentic, something true. And as the world gets darker, authentic Bible-believing Christians who don't compromise are going to shine brighter. There is so much that we worship in this world that's part of the Babylonian system. There are so many idols that want to compete for our mental and emotional energy. And God, in his grace, is warning us in advance. These things will never satisfy. They'll never satisfy. Why do I spend so much time and energy on the things, the systems of this world that will not satisfy And God says, like he says in Revelation 18, he says to us, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Come out. Come out and be free. My friend was knocking on the door. I came to the door. I answered. He said, I got to talk to you. We went to to, to my dining room. We sat down. 
He says, the world is going crazy. And I don't know what's going to happen when I die. And I know that there's a God. And I know that he sent his son Jesus. And I want to be baptized and follow him. Can you baptize, will you baptize me? I said, absolutely. I would love to. The things that are happening in our world, we can either, we can look at it one of two ways. And, and believe me, it's hard. We can look at what's happening and say, this, is, this world's so evil, it's so corrupt, it's so horrendous. Like, I just can't wait till God judges it. God, just come and, and, and just get rid of it. Just judge it because I'm so sick of it. Or we can look at it as an opportunity. For my friend, it was an opportunity. Because if, if those things wouldn't have happened in 2020, he wouldn't have had the urgency to come talk to me. He wouldn't have gotten baptized. And his family wouldn't be following Jesus like they are today if those things wouldn't have happened. We are living in the same kind of times. And I know of talking with some of you that you've had some of these similar things happen even recently where people who are far off from God have asked you about it or have asked for a Bible or have asked for different things. Let us be a people who are used in the end times to glorify God and stay true to his name, not a people who are, are complaining and grumbling about our situation. We were made for this. He created you to live in this time for a reason, for a purpose. I think about that with my, with my kids, with my girl. I'm like, oh, the world's so, like, corrupt. Like, how, how do you parent in this age? No, these, they were born for this. This is their time to serve God, to be a light for him. And the same is true for us. You are part of God's story of reclaiming his creation through Jesus Christ. You have a role in this system, in this process. And so my encouragement to you is do not waste it. Do not waste the opportunity. Do not take it for granted. We have our next steps forms. If there are next steps that you know you need to take, please, I encourage you to take them. Write them down, whether that's a prayer, that, something you need prayer for, whether that's wanting, que having questions. I would love to answer questions about Scripture. I don't know if I'd be able to answer. I might have to research them and get back with you, but I would love that. Whatever it is, don't be, um, don't be someone who sears your conscience and leaves here and says, I'll, I'll do it later. I'll put it off. Don't put it off. The message of Revelation is the time is now. The time to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is now. The time to go all in is today. And so I ask that you would do that, and let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Father, I can't believe your grace. Your grace is unbelievable. Your love is incredible. There are so many times when in my human thoughts, I look at what has happened in history and I think I never would have been as patient as you. I never would have been as full of grace as you. I never would have done the things that you do. That's why you're God and I'm not. That's why you are worshipped and I'm not. God, we give you all the praise and all the glory for your plan of salvation. For the fact that we were 
dead in our sins, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You brought us back into the fold. You disinherited the nations, but you made a plan to bring them back. And because of that, we can be called your sons and daughters. Because of that, we can have the assurance that in just a short time, because life is short, in a short time, we are going to face up to you. And we are going to have to account for the life that we've lived. Praise God that I will have Jesus, that we can have Jesus at our side saying, this one's mine. I've paid for the sin. This one, I know this one. This one is mine. God, I pray that if there's anything that is separating us from you, if there's something that Holy Spirit that you've brought to our minds, that you've brought to our attention, that we're slow to follow through on, that we're dragging our feet on, something that we've seared our consciences with, God, that we're not committing to, God, I pray that you would bring it full circle to our attention and allow us, God, to follow through and be obedient to what you're calling us to do. What is the word saying to you? What is the word saying to us? And what are we going to do about it? Lord, I pray that that question would, would, um, would linger in our hearts and our minds as we leave here. We just want to know you and serve you, God. We want to be used by you. I thank you for this church body. I thank you for um, each person who's here. Pray for the people who are not here. But ultimately, God, we just want to love you, praise you, honor you, and serve you in the, in the era, in this culture that we live. And so I pray that you'd give us the strength to do that at whatever capacity you've called us to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.